The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. All right, how we doing, 1130 service? Good? Good, I like the team spirit at the 1130 service. It makes me happy. We come to church late. All right, Um, Luke chapter five, starting at uh, verse 17 is where we're gonna be today. If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it. Luke chapter five, starting in verse 17. I'm gonna read it for us, we'll pray, and we'll, uh, we'll jump in. Luke 5, 17. One day, Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Let's pray. Father, uh, this text is so rich and full of promises for us this morning. This text reveals you. It shows us who you are. And so I just pray that you would speak loudly this morning to our hearts. Father, give us faith this morning to believe the truths that we're reading apply to us and our lives and our context today, here and now. And let this not just be 35 minutes listening to me talk, but would you speak to our hearts and send us out in power, transformed by your word a little bit more. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, we are in week five of our series called Unusual Suspects. And in this series, we're going through the gospel of Luke. And uh, I get excited about all of our series for different reasons. But one of the reasons I was excited about this series is I love going through the gospels because the gospels have a way of putting Jesus, the person and work and character of Jesus right in front of us in an unavoidable way and helping us answer the question of who Jesus is. And I don't know if that's a question you might have carried into church with you this morning. Who is Jesus? Really, like at the core essence of who he is and, and what he's like, who is Jesus? Um, you know, we've all come to church at some point asking that question. And, and we believe, as Story City and, and any Orthodox church would tell you, they believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That he uh, came to earth 
God incarnate, became man, lived a life, died on a cross for our sins, resurrected in power, ascended to the right hand of the throne of God where he sits now. And, and I just want to say, these are truths we hear so often that they can become um, very devoid of significance when we hear them. Like, do we actually think and believe this morning? Jesus, right now, in this moment, as we sit in the colony theater, there is a throne in heaven where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And, and, and the angels are crying, holy, holy, holy. Like, that's happening right now. Jesus is real. But the question comes to us this morning, who do we say Jesus is? Who is Jesus? I don't know what you think of Jesus. Maybe you've come this morning and you think like many religions, all religions have to do something with Jesus because he's historically unavoidable. So they'll do things like, ah, Jesus is a prophet. He was a, he was a prophet, he was a good teacher. Jesus had good things to say. He was a good preacher, a good man, but not God, not, not eternal, not the creator and author, the first and last, the beginning and end, the way, truth, and life. No, we're gonna throw all that. He's a, good, he's a good man. Or many will say, yeah, he's like God or he's God, but in this way, and they'll start trying to change the essence of who Jesus is. But you know, this, this belief that Jesus is a good man or a good teacher, while it sounds good and nice and neat, it's actually biblically a category that Jesus has not left open to us. You see, Jesus claimed with his own mouth many, many times that he was the first and the last, the great I am. He claimed that he was before Abraham. He claimed these truths about himself that were unavoidable. And, and you know, someone could come into our church this morning and stand before us and claim to be God. And we would probably have a lot of responses to them making this claim that they're God. But one I don't think many of us would have is, oh, he's probably just a neat guy. He's just a nice guy. Like he thinks he's God. He's just, I'm sure he's a great guy. No, you know what we would have to do? We would say either we would believe him and say, wow, he's actually God. Or we have to make a decision and say, no, he's either crazy or a liar. Because anyone that believes they're God, but is not God is either crazy or a liar. And so Jesus having made these claims, the same is true of him. We have to make our mind up about Jesus. Was he God? Was he crazy? Or was he a liar? And Jesus, we believe, was God. And as we'll see in our text today, he did incredible signs and wonders and taught with an authority that would prove and back up his claims to his deity. Some of us might also come in this room and say, you know, I'm, historically throughout my life, like I'm at church just feeling things out. But to me, like I've, my whole life, I've just kind of been passive. Like, I don't really care. Like, sure, Jesus, whatever. You guys have your Jesus and I have my life and I'm not really that concerned about it. I'm kind of apathetic about Jesus. Again, if we're gonna be thoughtful this morning, that's not, an, that's not a valid option. Because again, if somebody claims deity, we have to do one of two responses. We either bow our knee to that deity, confess them as Lord and align our lives to the pursuit of living according to the reality they have presented to us or we decide they're a liar and there's something that must be opposed or crazy because what they're saying is ultimately harmful if not true. So again, apathy is not a great option this morning. And in our text today in Luke chapter five, we see that these religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees are asking this very same question I wanna put before us this morning. Who is Jesus? See, Jesus has showed up on the, t on the scene. His public ministry has started. He's begun calling his disciples. He's begun doing signs and wonders, casting out demons, healing the sick. And we're told that word about Jesus has spread not only so that crowds of people needing miracles and being curious about what he has to say have come, but the word of him has actually reached the upper echelons 
of the religious leaders of the Jewish tradition, the Pharisees and the scribes. And they are curious about what is going on with Jesus. Word of his power, word that people are following him. Picture the mega church pastors of his day. They wanna know who is this Jesus? How is he doing what he's doing? And we're gonna come find out. And so in our text today, we're told that Jesus is teaching and the room is full to the brim of people. But in this room, scattered throughout are Pharisees and teachers of the law, scribes who have come from all over to test and hear Jesus. Luke 5, 17, we read this. One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. If you've spent any time at church, you hear a lot about these Pharisees when Jesus has taught on. They were, they were kind of his primary opponents, the people he spoke most harshly to. They were the religious leaders of the day. And what these Pharisees had done is they had taken these laws, these Mosaic covenants, the Torah, they'd memorized it, they started to apply it, but they've also started creating these external laws and rules that people had to adhere to to stay in their favor. And if they didn't, they would gladly call them out on it. See, they had started elevating truths that were not explicitly stated in the scriptures or not addressed at all to a point of orthodoxy that must be followed in order to be in good standing with God. In a word, they had created this system called legalism and they saw themselves as the arbitrators of truth and anyone who didn't measure up must be taken down. And so they're here to test Jesus. They wanna know, is Jesus good or is he a problem? In a word, what these Pharisees were were experts in the sins and weaknesses of everybody but themselves. These Pharisees had a really good line of what was wrong in everybody else's life, but an inability to assess their own hearts, find their own self-righteousness and repent and turn to Christ. They were experts in everyone else's sins and problems but theirs. And you can picture these Pharisees scattered throughout the room, this room of people eager to know what's going on. Jesus is doing these miraculous things and Scattered throughout this room, these Pharisees stand probably with their arms folded, waiting, testing, arbitrators of truth, guardians of truth, ready to pounce on anything Jesus has to say that doesn't line up. And we read in verse, uh, in verse 17 that the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. In verse 16, we read that Jesus had spent all night in prayer and through time with his father, he's come to this room with power on him to heal the sick. But isn't it interesting that the Pharisees completely miss this miracle that's available to them? They completely miss the power that is available to them. They don't see themselves as sick. They, they see themselves as healthy. They don't see themselves as students. They see themselves as teachers. They don't recognize that what they don't need is more facts about Jesus or to judge or learn from his teaching even, but what they need is a new heart that would bow in reverence to God as he is and recognize in humility their need for a savior. They stood before the only person able to give it to them, but they completely missed the true power of Jesus because they were focused on facts. I wanna say this this morning and then I wanna explain what I mean by it and what I don't mean, but beware the belief this morning that what you need most to truly change is more information about Jesus. 
Beware that truth. Beware that thought. And here's what I don't mean. I don't mean that doctrine isn't important. I don't mean that we shouldn't apply our minds in significant ways to study and know Jesus. I don't mean that this isn't a fruit of loving Jesus well, that we would seek knowledge of him. But what do I mean? I mean that though knowledge is good and right, ultimately what we need most is not more information about Jesus, but a new heart. We need new hearts to love Jesus. See, 1 Corinthians 1.8 tells us that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So there is a way to know all the information and facts, but you're just floating around like a giant puffer fish, puffed up in your knowledge, no love. Galatians 5.6 would tell us that the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in truth. No, that's not what it says. Faith expressing itself in love. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that if we speak with the tongues of men and angels, I've never personally heard it, but it tells me that if someone was able to speak with the tongues of angels, but there wasn't love on their tongue, it's a gong, a clanging cymbal, worthless, worthless. See, love is the supreme test of knowledge of Jesus. Do you love people before you judge them? Do you love God more than anything? Jeremiah 24, seven, God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah to the nation of Judah who is in captivity because of their sin. And he says, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back. And in this, in this context, he says, I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. See, he doesn't say, I'm going to give them more facts, more information. He says what? I'm going to take these people who haven't been seeking me, who have been living as if I'm not a reality, and I'm going to give them a new heart so that they can seek me and know that I am the Lord. What we need most is a radical transformation in the inside, in our hearts, that will give us a supernatural love for Jesus that begins to produce fruit in our lives that we are otherwise incapable, incapable of producing. Beware if you are growing in knowledge of Jesus, but not growing in love. You may be becoming a Pharisee. The primary test is love. Verse 18, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. So the narrative shifts from the Pharisees and we meet what Mark chapter two, verse three in Mark's account would tell us are four men and they're carrying a man who is crippled, paralyzed, and he's laying on a bed, picture a cot of sorts, and they're carrying this man. And you can picture them as they carry this man to this house and they're coming and this, the other accounts in Matthew and Mark again tell us that the crowd wasn't just filling up the house, but it was literally pouring out the doors. There's crowds, so you can picture him kind of carrying this man like, Billy, you are heavy, bro. We're gonna stop with the nachos. And they're carrying him and then they get like a couple hundred yards away and they're like, oh man, are you kidding me? Look at this crowd, like people come out, what are we gonna do, Billy? And you can picture him in any moment, like normal. I can picture myself and be like, well, we tried. 
All right, we tried, buddy. We're gonna take you home. We'll come back tomorrow, see if the crowd's not. But no, these men are resolved. They are getting their friend to Jesus. And we're told they literally climb up on the roof and the roofs in this time, um, they were exposed. And there was actually people would live, do, do living activities on the roof and they were made of clay tiles. And so we're told that they go up on the roof and they begin to remove the tiles to rip them up and to create a hole in the ceiling. And then they lower this man on a mat down right in front of Jesus. We aren't told much about these men, but there is much to be appreciated and modeled in what they model. One, they show us that they were willing to sacrifice their own comfort to get their friend to Jesus. They were willing to lay down their own comfort. They were driven to get him to Jesus. We're told we can see that they had great faith that Jesus actually could heal their friend. Like why go through all of this to lower this man down in front of Jesus if you don't believe in your heart of hearts that there's at least a strong possibility that Jesus might be actually able to do supernatural things for your brother. We also can see that they had little regard for what other people thought of their pursuit of Jesus. I mean, think about this, this house is full, likely people in their communities that they know, people they see at work, people they see every day, and yet they're willing to not just come in with this man, but they're gonna tear the roof apart and lower him and completely interrupt everything. See, their goal was Jesus. They weren't concerned with anything but getting this man to Jesus. This man, I don't know if he was a wealthy man or a poor man, but I know he was rich in friends. He had people in his time of need who were willing to fight to get him to Christ, to get him to Jesus. You know, the Christian life can't be lived without that. All of us are going to encounter times in our life when suffering, trial, fear, doubt, sickness begin to enter the fray of our life. And we need people around us like these men in those moments. We need people who will fight for us in prayer, in love, in tangible ways of entering into our life purposefully on on mission to help us see Jesus in times where we, we, we may otherwise doubt. And you know what? I love being a part of the body of Christ because I see it all the time. Go through a trial as a Christian and watch how the body of Christ flocks to you. Watch how they run to meet your needs. Watch how they shower you with love. Watch how they create meal trains of lasagna and frozen food. Watch, Christians, this is what we model. Do you have this kind of community in your life? Are you this kind of community to anyone in your life? When you see a friend struggling, are you fighting for them in prayer? Are you taking them to the Lord in prayer? Are you speaking truth into their life? Not in this kind of um, self-righteous, like, well, you know, you shouldn't worry because Romans 8, 28 says God works all things for good, so stop crying. Not, I'm not talking about that. <laughs> I'm talking about tangible, being the hands and feet of Jesus, loving justice, loving mercy, running to those in need. We also read that the reason this man couldn't get to Christ on his bed was that there was this giant crowd keeping him from getting in the door. And I love that these friends aren't deterred by the crowd. Because you know, Jesus always draws a crowd, still today. We are one of them. Where Jesus is faithfully proclaimed, people will be drawn to him because he tells us in his word that when he is lifted up, he will draw people to himself. And so there's always a crowd around Jesus. And I've noticed in my life that there are many people who allow the crowd to keep them from Jesus. 
What do I mean by that? I've met people and talked to them who say things like this. You know, I've, I've tried, I would love to like spend more time in church, but honestly, I just, the awkwardness of church is just not for me. Like, the like, I get out of my car and there's someone at the door, like, and it's their job to like, hey brother, how you doing today? They're standing at the door ready to meet me. And then I get in and like, we do this worship. And then there's this forced time of greeting where I have to stand up and like shake the hands of everyone around me. And honestly, like I'm an introvert and I just try to hide and stay in my seat and hope no one notices me while all the extroverts are like, yay, greeting time. <laughs> Hi, how, how are you? And I've actually had conversations with people that just say, I just, that, that church culture is not me. I say, well, you know what? <laughs> That's a small thing if Jesus is who he says he is. That is a small thing if Jesus is who he says he is. I've also heard people say, uh, you know, I'm just trying to find that church where the crowd is just my type of people and I'm having a really hard time finding my type of people. Uh, you know, I've, I've tried bouncing from church to church. I'm, sh- I'm, I'm church shopping. Got my bag. I just can't find my type of people. I just, I don't know. I will say this to you as your pastor in love. Good luck. <laughs> I've also heard people say, you know, Christians are, are just hypocrites. I've tried church, the crowd, it's just full of hypocrites. I just can't do it. <laughs> you know what I say to that? Amen. You're right. The church is absolutely full of hypocrites. You'll fit in great. <laughs> Listen. We're all hypocrites in this place. That's why there's a cross. That's why Jesus had to die in our place to save us because we are hypocrites. We don't even live up to our own standards for other people, much less the standards of God for us. If I put a recorder around your neck for a week and said, I'm only gonna judge you by what you say, other, what you, say you expect of other people, every single one of us would fail that test. We're all hypocrites. That's what we are. That's why we come to a church that preaches grace and forgiveness and the cross of Jesus Christ. Because we need a savior and we have one. So if hypocrites are keeping you from church, I would lovingly lay before you that maybe you don't have a realistic view of yourself and what you need. The last one I'll say is I've heard people say, you know, I've just been hurt by the church and I don't want to make light of that. I've been, I've been hurt by the church. The church hurts people. You know why? Because the crowd isn't Christ. Because we're all sinners in need of grace. Because we come as blind men showing blind men where to find food, not as the answers in and of ourselves. And if you commit to a church for any amount of time, you're going to rub shoulders with other sinners and there's going to be sparks eventually. You know what real church is supposed to look like? It's supposed to look like, you know what? I'm not going anywhere because Christ didn't go anywhere for me and I have been forgiven though I didn't deserve it. And so I'm going to enter into the fray of these broken relationships where people have hurt me, where I feel wronged. I'm going to demonstrate grace. I'm going to admit my wrongs, and I'm going to continue walking forward and see how God glorifies himself through that as we walk in grace in a world that's full of judgment. That's not an excuse for churches to wound people. That is a way to say, here at at Story City, we wanna walk in grace together. Even your leaders wanna model repentance and humility. We wanna be able to say where we're wrong. We wanna say that Christ is the answer and the savior, not us. So do not confuse the crowd for Christ this morning. The crowd is not Jesus. The crowd is full of thirsty sinners just like you. And Jesus is the fountain. He is able, he does not disappoint and he's worth your pursuit. 
So picture this moment a little more with me. Jesus sits below. And these friends have climbed up and they start peeling tiles back in this room, just full shoulder to shoulder, sitting room only, people trying to move their legs because it's just so awkward and full and they're just hanging on Jesus every word and suddenly tiles start being pulled back from the ceiling. You can kind of picture people below like, hey, hey, what's going on? But Jesus, I got to imagine he doesn't respond. And then the more the hole gets bigger and bigger, people are looking up like, what is going on? And I got to imagine Jesus just keeps teaching and so attention starting to go to the ceiling and then suddenly these four kind of sheepish friends kind of peer over the side of the hole. Like, <laughs> and everyone's kind of like, what is going on? And then they lower this cot and they've rigged it somehow and they start lowering this man, this sick man on a cot down through the hole. And I gotta wonder, you know, what's going through everyone's mind at this point? What's going through, I wonder what's going through this crippled man's mind. I wonder if he honestly, when he got there and his friends were carrying him and he's like, he saw the crowd and he was like, okay guys, I'm cool. I'm cool, like, it's all good, we tried. I can go one more day, we'll get to Jesus another time. And then they're like, no, Billy, we got this. And they're like, all right guys, up on the ceiling. He's like, no guys, seriously, I'm good. And then they started, so I wonder if he's being really lowered, like, oh man, really guys, come on. Or I wonder if maybe he just lied there so apathetically, just he had given up hope. And even as his friends, he's just laying there kind of in a daze, hopelessly being lowered down in front of Jesus. I wonder, was he expectant, hopeful? Did he feel that rush of what if? What if Christ actually can reverse this and turn my story around? I wonder what the people in the room thought. I'm certain that the man who owned the home had a few thoughts about what was going on. I wonder if the crowd was annoyed, like, come on, we're here for Jesus. Like, stop getting in our way. Like, we wanna hear what this guy has to say. Maybe he has something for me. I got a gimp leg too. Like, guys, come on. I wonder if they were, there was anyone that knew the man in the room that was like, oh, what's he gonna do for my bro? What's gonna happen? But you know, this whole room was just hanging in the moment, waiting to see how Jesus would respond. Will he ignore them? Will he rebuke them? Will he do a miracle. Verse 20, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. We get our answer. Jesus meets faith with mercy. It's what he always does. Jesus always meets faith with mercy. When God gives us the gift of faith in our lives, in our hurting, Psalms 34 would tell us that God is near to the brokenhearted, saves those who are crushed in spirit. Jesus meets faith with mercy. But it's interesting, because I gotta think in this moment, it's not the mercy anyone expected or even hoped for. See, to the room who's viewing this situation through human eyes, just like you or I, if we were there, what they see is a crippled man being lowered before Jesus on a bed. And their question would obviously be this, just like yours and mine would be, will he make his legs work again? Can he actually heal this man? But Jesus doesn't address that need first. He sees through that. He sees with the eyes of his heart to a deeper need this man has. And the deepest need this man has is not a physical infirmity, but a spiritual infirmity. And that is true in each of us 
as well. So he responds not with get up and walk, not yet. He responds with, son, your sins are forgiven. And most commentators would agree that the reason Jesus went here first is because this man likely was attaching his physical brokenness to some sin in his life. And he was carrying some weight of unbelievable guilt that his sin had caused his sickness and that his sickness was a result of his failure and a judgment of God upon him. And so Jesus goes straight for his heart first. He says, your sins are forgiven. And we hear that and we think, okay, cool. What this man likely heard in that from Jesus was a drink of water in a hot desert. I don't know what you're longing for this morning. I don't know what you feel like your life is missing and you're just waiting and saying, God, will you come through on this? Maybe it's a relationship, maybe you're just incredibly lonely and at night you literally sometimes weep in loneliness, wondering when God will bring someone into your life. Maybe it's a sickness that you carry, the pain you feel that burns within you. And you ask God and you beg God, when will you take this away? I know you're God, I need faith, help me. But you doubt and you wrestle and you question and yet you cling to faith in Christ. God bless you if that's you. I don't know what your burden is, but I know this. Whatever burden you carry into this place this morning, be it great or small, the deepest need we have has already been met in Christ. And that sounds possibly like a platitude this morning, like, oh good, like everything's good. That doesn't make my problems any better. I want to say to us, if we could take Jesus's view, if we could see eternity as he sees it, we would know that when the apostle Paul calls our troubles light and momentary, he's not being dismissive. He's saying to us, there's something coming that if you could see the way I see, you would look at your trial in this moment and rejoice because you know that that trial is doing exactly what the word of God says it's doing, achieving for you a glory that is far greater and not even worthy of comparing to your present suffering. Why? Because Christ already proved his love for you at the cross and bought forgiveness for you there through his life and death on a cross in your place so that you can know no matter what you suffer through today, no matter what longing you carry, the only explanation that doesn't make sense is that God doesn't care. He is invested in your life and he proved it at the cross and we can look backwards when it's hard to look forwards and see that God is working this for good in our lives as hard as it is. And I have been through seasons of longing, questioning, wrestling, even cursing God at times. But I want to say to you this morning, he is faithful. And though some of us literally may not see his faithfulness in the trial we're walking through until the other side of this life, we will see it. A healing is coming. And eternity is true. No more tears, no more sickness, no more doubt, no more pain, only joy. Christ will be our light in a new kingdom, a new Jerusalem. That day is coming. It's coming for me and it's coming for you. And I don't know why God lets us carry our diseases and our sicknesses and our fears and our burdens right now. I wish he would remove them all, but I know this, it's not because he doesn't love us and it's not because he doesn't wanna give us something good. True joy is coming. 
I pray that he would take it. I pray that he would heal it. I pray that he would bring that person into your life. But more than that, I pray Jesus will give us faith to trust him to trust his word, to trust his promises, Romans 8, 32, that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? But not only is Christ going this forgiveness route first to address this man's needs, he's also playing a little game of chess with the Pharisees who are playing checkers. And he's about to set him up for a whooping. Can I say that in church? Verse 21, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now remember, the Pharisees are the religious elite. They've got more scripture memorized than you've likely read this year. Um, They know the law. They understand the implications of things. And here's what they just heard Jesus say when he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. They heard a claim to divinity because they know, according to the Torah, only God can forgive sins. And so what they heard when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, behind that, they heard Jesus say to them, I'm God, that's who I am, and you need to deal with it. I have the power to forgive sins because I am God. And that's why they heard it. And they, they heard that, they analyzed it for a second and their predisposition being opposed to Jesus revealed itself and in an instant they made their judgment about him. No, you're not. And so this claim you've just made that this man's sins are forgiven is a blasphemy and you must be dealt with. See, they've brought their predisposition about Christ to the room. They brought it in the door with them. They already decided he was a fraud, a threat to their power, a threat to their authority, a threat to their kingdom. And his words and his ministry must be undermined at all costs. They don't hope that he's actually forgiving this man. They find a way to undermine him. Raises a question for us this morning. What predispositions did you walk through the door with about Jesus this morning? And what in your life is his lordship a threat to? What in your life is the lordship of Jesus Christ a threat to? What would begin to be torn down in your personal kingdom if Christ was truly made king in every way? We all have things. It's not meant to be judgment. That's meant to be, hey, our hearts are deceitful. Jeremiah 29 says they're wicked above all things. We need to analyze our hearts. We need to test ourselves and examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. And we need to recognize that there are things we bring in the door with us this morning that need to be repented of, predispositions about Christ that would cause us to push back against his lordship. But his lordship is the only path to freedom for us this morning. Jesus knew what they were thinking, which is terrifying. I think my wife has that same ability sometimes. Um, So they didn't say anything. Like we think, they probably said this. No, they were just thinking these things in their hearts. And Jesus says to them, Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? Now, this is another moment you gotta love because no one said anything. Jesus just said to this man on the mat, you're forgiven. No one says anything and you gotta think there's a gasp in the room. Like what's, what's he gonna do next? And then Jesus out of nowhere, like starts in mid conversation with these Pharisees in the room. He's like, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? If a pastor ever pulls that at church, leave immediately. Okay. 
Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? And then he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? Now, that was confusing to me for a long time. I gotta be honest. I'm like, well, what do you mean, Jesus? Like, your sins are forgiven, get up and walk. They're basically equal to say, they're not hard. That's not what Jesus means. See, here's what Jesus is getting at. To these Pharisees, from their point of view, it's much easier for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because it doesn't need to be validated with a miracle that can be visually seen. The miracle is invisible. So Jesus can say, your sins are forgiven. It doesn't get, they don't get to test it by anything. So it's very easy for Jesus to say that. But if Jesus is to say, get up and walk, suddenly Jesus has put himself in a position where he has to prove that what he's saying is actually backed up by power and authority. It's much harder to say. And what does Jesus do? His next statement is this. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus just gave us his motive for the miracle. Why is he going to heal this man? Because he wants the people in the room and explicitly these Pharisees, he wants them to know that when he says this man was forgiven, he meant it and it was effectual. It actually happened somewhere before the throne of God, even though we're pre-atonement. Somehow this man is forgiven. And I wanna say this, if Jesus can forgive that man's sins before he went to the cross, he can most certainly forgive all of ours after he shed his blood to forgive us. So Jesus says to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. In a moment, Jesus proves his power. He proves that his words are not in vain, that they are backed up with the authority of God Almighty himself. See, this man came in bondage, spiritual bondage, fear, doubt, a sense of unforgiveness. This man came in physical bondage, unworthy, unable to walk. I wonder if he had a family, a career that had put on hold. I wonder if his kids are unable to eat. He's come with all of these burdens to Christ and Christ in a moment removes all of it with a word. What we need to see this morning is this. There is no bondage, spiritual, emotional, spiritual, physical, that Jesus is not able to heal in a moment and with a word. His authority is perfect. His will is flawless. His purposes will be accomplished and he can do it. Do you believe that Jesus is able in your life this morning? Will you turn to him? Will you look to him above other things? Jesus' miracle proves that the forgiveness he pronounced is equally as effectual in this man's life and in our lives as the pronunciation that made his legs work again. And this is important for us because the reality is so many of us live with a vague sense of guilt and shame in our Christian walk. Maybe that's one of the things that makes it hard for you to come to church. It's like, I just don't feel worthy. But we live with this sense that we're just not good enough, that when God looks at us, there's a scowl on his face because he's just disappointed. Like, I can't believe you did that again. When are you gonna get your act together? That's what the world teaches us. 
That's how the world teaches us people respond. But listen to me, that is not how God responds. Why? Because it's not about your performance at all. It's about the performance of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And God looks at you if you've come to him by faith and he sees Jesus' perfect record and he puts it on you. And so that means this, when you fall into sin, you don't need to run and hide anymore. What you can do is run to Jesus rather than away from him in your sin, turning from your sin, recognizing that Jesus is better than your sin, but all the more not feeling a sense of shame, not feeling a sense of guilt, feeling maybe a healthy sense of conviction, but not a sense of condemnation. And you can run to Jesus rather than from him in your guilt and shame. Why? Because he's not your punisher, he's your remedy. He's the one that takes it, not the one that stands before you and says, yeah, you're right, you stink. He's the one that says, yeah, I died for that. I love you. The price is paid. Believe that this morning. Have faith to believe that this morning and respond in faith. Verse 25. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Isn't it, I found it very interesting. I find it interesting that Jesus says to this man, he doesn't just say, get up and go home. He says, take your mat and go home. Interesting, right? He could have, he could have responded a lot of ways. He could have like looked around the room and be like, hey, uh, the guy's walking, he's gone. Can we get clean up on aisle six here? This thing reeks of BO. Let's get it out of here. That's not what he says. He says, take your mat and go See, this mat had become this man's life. It was his comfort. It was his refuge. It was what held him. It was the thing that defined his life. And in a moment, Jesus says, see what's been holding you? Now you're gonna hold it. See what's been defining you? Now my love defines it. So I'm not gonna remove it. I'm not gonna say that thing stunk. It was part of your life. It's a symbol of worst days. I want you to throw it out and never look at it again. Try to erase its reality from your life. He says, no, I want you to carry it with you. And you know why? Because it's gonna become a testimony of my power. It's been gonna become a sign that when I do something, miracles happen and they've happened in your life and it's gonna bring glory to me. So often we think, God, I've got this problem in my life. I've got loneliness, I've got addiction, I've got sickness, I've, I've got some sort of sim struggle I can't beat and I just want it gone. Like I want its reality erased from existence. My life would be better, but that's not what Jesus does when he gets a hold of us. He doesn't erase it, he doesn't make us forget it, he transforms it. Just as he puts us in Christ when we come to him, he puts our suffering, he puts our sin, he puts our past in Christ and makes it a tool for his glory in our lives and a testimony of what he can do in our lives. See, the thing that held us in its power, we now hold in his. And it's a testimony to the world a testimony that Jesus is able, a testimony that he can take even the worst situations and work them for good. So you can picture this man suddenly leaving for the public square and carrying his mat around the next day and people are looking like, hey, isn't that Billy? Dude, that guy was, I know that guy, he's been a cripple. What, how, he's carrying his mat. What's going on here? Let's go find out. Hey dude, why are you, how, how are you, why are you carrying your mat? Yeah, dude, I met this guy named Jesus. He spoke forgiveness over my life. Then he just said, get up. And I felt my legs work again and they work now. 
I can't explain it. And guess what's going to start happening? Glory is going to spread about Jesus, not about the man. That's what's going to happen in our lives when we choose not to hide our past and our failures and our sicknesses, but to put them in the light and say, Jesus is faithful in this. He's for me. He's with me. And he's able. Glory will be given, which is why verse 26 says, everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. So I want to land where we started. Who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he God? Is he able? Are his words backed up with true power when he speaks forgiveness over your life? Does it mean right now in this moment, though you are a failure and a sinner, you are loved and viewed as perfect before the throne of God? Or are we just playing church games? If it's real, let's walk out of this room this morning believing that, filled with the strength of God on high, believing in the risen Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for setting Jesus before us this morning. Thank you that he didn't just say we are forgiven, but he proved it. His signs and wonders were given to demonstrate that when he comes to forgive, he means business and it works and it's real and he is who he said he is and he is the creator, the one who breathed breath into us. Come to planet earth to forgive us, to love us, to reconcile us, to welcome us home. Father, let faith arise in this church in no other name but Jesus. Jesus, begin to work in our lives in more significant ways to align our lives to your life. We live in a world and a city full of people who believe in you with their heads, but their lives show that we're just not that interested. And I know I can be that person at times. Jesus, if I'm not careful, the current of our culture is strong. So wake us up, pull us into Christ. Make him the most important thing when we wake up and the most important thing when we go to bed. Living Jesus, fill us now by your spirit. We welcome you in this place.